The reading today is taken from John, chapter 1, and can be found on page 1063 of the Bibles in front of you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Great. Please do uh, keep that open in front of you, John chapter 1, and we'll have a look at some of the most famous words ever written. Uh, My name's Glenn, and uh, I live in Eastbourne most of the time, but I'm from Australia. I just say that because uh, people start to pick up a bit of an accent. Uh, Of course, they're wrong. They've got the accent. I speak perfectly normally. Um... I live uh, there with Emma, uh, my wife, and Ruby, our daughter, and it's my job to really go around the place and shoot my mouth off about Jesus. That's a good job to have, isn't it? And uh, so that job brings me here this morning to talk to you about the Lord Jesus, my favorite thing in all the world to do. So why don't we pray with John's gospel open in front of us, that I would be clear, and that we would learn what God has to say to each one of us, that God would speak to us personally and powerfully. Let's, let's pray now. Our dear Father, thank you so much that we have your word open in front of us, and I pray that you would show each of us that it is your word, because this morning, will you speak to us? Will you show up? Will you reveal yourself this morning to us, personally and powerfully, that each of us might see Jesus clearly, and in his face may we know what you are like And may we know what we are like. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, my job takes me around the country talking about Jesus, uh, often to people who don't believe in Jesus. And I've developed a couple of rules of thumb uh, as I go around and talk about Jesus. Uh, Rule of thumb number one is uh, if somebody is over the age of 60 and they tell me that they're a Christian, I don't believe them. Not straight away, anyway. 
I'm not rude about it. I don't sort of poke them in the chest and say, prove it. Um, I'm not that Australian. But uh, if they say to me, I'm a Christian and they're over 60, I think to myself, oh, maybe, maybe. Let's, let's keep talking. And the reason I do that is because there's such a thing as nominal Christianity, isn't there? And maybe 60 years ago, it was a lot easier to sort of choose Christian from off the shelf and slap it on as a label and to walk out into the world and you're a Christian and people ask you, why are you a Christian? And you say, well, my family's Christian, I'm English, I was baptized, I guess I I must be a Christian, mustn't I? So there is such a thing as, as nominal Christianity, isn't there? That it might not be a heartfelt commitment, but just a label that's being culturally convenient. So if somebody's over 60 and they tell me they're a Christian, I don't believe them yet. But I have a second rule of thumb. My second rule of thumb is this. If someone is under the age of 30 and they tell me they're an atheist, I don't believe them. For exactly the same reason. Because there is such a thing as nominal atheism, right? These days, it's very easy to go to the shelf and pick out the atheist label, isn't it? And you just wear it and slap it on and walk out into the world and people ask you, what are you? And people say, I don't know, I don't really believe, I, I'm an agnostic, I'm an atheist. But you press into the, the, that person's beliefs and you discover that they haven't really put that much thought into it. It's just a cultural atheism, a nominal atheism. So these are my two rules of thumb. If you're over 60 and you tell me you're a Christian, I don't believe you. If you tell me you're an atheist and you're under 30, I don't believe you yet. We need to have a conversation. And this morning, whether you're under 30 or over 60 or somewhere in the middle, whether you identify as a Christian or an atheist or a Jedi Knight, I don't mind. You're very welcome at BH. This is a great church for you to be wrestling things through in. But my question goes deeper than, do you believe in God or not? I think we need to go deeper. We need to ask the much more fundamental question, which God are we talking about? Which God are we talking about? If you believe in God, okay, fine. Which God do you believe in? There are millions out there. There are millions just in Hinduism. Which God do you believe in? Or if you don't believe in God this morning... Once again, this is a great church for you to wrestle things through in. If you don't believe in God, which God don't you believe in? We might find that there's all sorts of common ground that we share as you describe the God that you don't believe in. I often do this. People say, I don't believe in God. I say, which God don't you believe in? And they say, well, just, you know, just, just God, right? Just, and I say, well, describe him to me. And they say, well, you know, it's, it's distant kind of beard, I believe thunderbolts, quite tetchy, a bit of a perfectionist. And, and I start to think, that's Thor. I, I don't believe in Thor. We've got real common ground at that point. I am also an atheist with, with regards to Thor. But can we talk about Jesus? Because that's the God that I'm interested in. Which God do you believe in? Well, I'm talking about the Jesus God. Which God don't you believe in? I'm talking about the Jesus God. That's the God that John is talking about here this morning. We're going to think about these verses from the beginning of John's biography of Jesus this morning. And then we're going to look at his words from the end of this famous biography, John's Gospel. And he will, with great clarity, narrow us down on the real issue. Which God are we talking about? And he is constantly talking to us about the Jesus God. 
This John's Gospel is uh, the most famous piece of literature ever written. I don't know if you know this, but uh, more people have read or heard these words than any other words in the history of literature. These words have built civilizations. These words, these words have changed the lives of billions of people. Um, that's quite an extraordinary fact, don't you think? Do you think there might be wisdom here? Even if you don't already believe that this is God's word, these are extraordinary words, don't you think? This book has built our world, it's founded civilizations, it's changed billions of lives, and it's done it by focusing us on the Jesus God. Here are the opening verses. Next to the big number one, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was, he was with God in the beginning. The word was with God and was God. There he was in the beginning. If you were to sort of diagram this scene, I'd probably draw uh, like a throne to represent God's power and authority and control. And then you've got like, like this big speech bubble coming out of the throne, don't you? A big speech bubble. And what's inside the speech bubble? What is it that, it's, that is explaining God to us? Actually, there's a person inside the speech bubble. That's weird, isn't it? There is a person who explains God. There is a person who communicates God to us. There's a person who expresses God to the world. Who is this person? Who is this person that is the communication of God? Well, it's word with a capital W, isn't it? And if you let your eyes go down to verse 14, little number 14, it says, this word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You know who explains God? Jesus. Jesus is in the speech bubble. He is our picture of God. He is the communication of God, the image of God. and He's the Son of the Father, apparently. He's a chip off the old block. He is everything that God wants to say to the world. What's God like? Which God are we talking about? We're talking about the Jesus God. Don't you think that's exciting news? Don't you think in a world in which there's such confusion about the issue of God and which God we're even talking about, here comes a person called Jesus and he is just love covered over with flesh, isn't he? If you keep on reading John's gospel, you will see he really is full of grace and truth. He is this one who comes and stoops and serves and suffers and bleeds and dies. Jesus, throughout John's gospel, is constantly talking about the day that he'll be lifted up and shown to the world for who he is. The day he'll be glorified. He keeps talking about this hour. This hour is coming when he'll be glorified, when he'll be lifted up, when he'll be seen for who he is. And he keeps on using this language. The hour is coming. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to show the world what I'm like. I'll be lifted up. I'll be glorified. And I imagine that everyone listening to him would be thinking, oh, maybe he's going to be lifted up on a stage. Maybe he's going to be lifted up on a throne. And you read to the end of John's gospel and he's lifted up on a cross with his arms wide open to the world. And the whole of John's gospel is saying to you, this is what it looks like to be God. This is what it looks like to be God. This figure full of grace and truth with his arms outstretched to the world. Which God do you believe in? Which God don't you believe in? I'm talking about the Jesus God. 
I use that phrase, the Jesus God, because I, I picked it up from this uh, Iranian woman that I met a few years ago. I was speaking in a university in uh, Exeter, and she was taking copious notes to my talks, which is a rarity, and, and so it piqued my interest. I went over and I talked to her, and I said, you know, what's your story? And she said, well, I grew up in Iran, and I went to the mosque, and I learned the prayers in Arabic. I don't even speak Arabic, but I learned to say the prayers five times a day. And, and then, aged 14, my uncle got me a copy of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And she said, I started reading about these stories of Jesus. And she said, I made the most wonderful discovery. About halfway through Luke's Gospel, I suddenly realized God could not be the God of the Ayatollahs, the God of the religious leaders. He could not be the God of the Ayatollahs. He must be the Jesus God. Whatever else God is like, he must be the Jesus God, or else he's not really God. She was saying words to me that uh, were very uh, reminiscent of the words that Lord Byron, the poet, once said back in the 19th century. He said, if God is not like Jesus Christ, he ought to be. It's a good line, isn't it? If God is not like Jesus Christ, he ought to be. Well, the good news of the Bible is that God is exactly and entirely, utterly like Jesus. Because Jesus is the word of God. He is the explanation of God. He is what God is like and he's full of grace and truth. What a beautiful combination verse 14 gives us. Grace and truth. Did you see that at the end of verse 14? Grace and truth. Think of someone who's full of grace. Think of someone who's just full of forgiving love. Full of kindness. Full of sweetness. Now think of someone who's full of truth. You know, they tell it like it is. A real straight talker. No sugarcoating, you know, like a northerner or something, or, or an Australian, you know. I'm full of truth, and some are full of grace. You've probably imagined two very different people, haven't you? Some are full of truth, some are full of grace. What would it be like to have someone full of grace and truth in the same person? Well, keep reading John's Gospel, and you'll, you'll see exactly what it is like to encounter a person full of grace and truth. I mean, just over the page, it's amazing. Chapter 2. Here is the very first miracle that Jesus performs in order to demonstrate to the world what he is like. In John's gospel, the miracles are called signs because they point to the identity of Jesus. And what is the very first sign? What's this very first miracle? Perhaps you know it. Chapter 2. See the heading? Jesus changes water into wine. That's interesting, isn't it? God shows up on planet Earth. What's the first thing he wants to do to tell you what he's like? It's interesting, he goes to a party that's flagging, and he turns the water into wine. A lot of wine, like 800 bottles worth of the stuff, right? That's a lot. Which God do you believe in? Which God don't you believe in? For a lot of my friends who don't believe in God, the God they don't believe in is the sort of God who'd show up at the party and turn the wine back into the water, right? This is a different God. He goes to the party and he brings wine. And then, look at the, uh, the, the next page, 1065. The very next thing he does, the next heading, Jesus clears the temple courts. Do you know this story? You're almost meant to get the sense that he's just left the temple and he, he's just left the party and he goes into the temple, like the holiest place on planet earth, full of, you know, the religious authorities in their long flowing robes, looking so very, very holy and looking like they've just sucked, you know, 
uh, chili off a thistle, and just uh, that kind of, you know, that very pious look. And there they are swanning around, and they're full of hypocrisy, and Jesus can't stand it. And you know this story? He, he weaves together a whip out of cords to drive the animals out, and he turns the tables of the money changers over. This is an interesting God, don't you think? He goes to the party, and he brings wine. He goes to the temple, and he brings a whip. Interesting God, isn't he? But he's full of grace and truth, and truth and grace, and grace and truth. You know, the next thing he does, do you see that heading? Jesus teaches Nicodemus. Maybe you know this story. Here's this religious authority figure, Nicodemus. He's kind of a big deal. He's rich, he's righteous, he's respectable. And Jesus tells him famously, you need to be born again. Have you heard that phrase before? I think, I think we've all sort of heard about, you know, born again Christianity. Um, when you read about this phrase in its context, you realize how offensive it is. Because you just think, well, what's wrong with his first birth? Here's this, you know, let's imagine he's 40 years old. He's at the top of the tree, rich, righteous, respectable. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You've got to start all over again. You've got to be born again, buddy. That's truth, don't you see? Anyone who raises themselves up, Jesus brings truth and cuts them down to size. There's truth. But then on the next page, Jesus encounters the next person. Chapter 4, Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. Do you know this story? Here is a woman who by the standards of her day was, she was the wrong religion, wrong nationality, wrong gender, wrong lifestyle. All of Jesus' followers thought, she's just wrong. She's the wrong gender, wrong nationality, wrong religion, wrong lifestyle, wrong, 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 wrong. And Jesus just offers her the living waters of his spirit instantly, for free and forever, just overflowing with grace to this woman who, by the standards of the day, was just wrong, 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 wrong. Do you see how he's full of truth and grace and grace and truth and truth and grace? You could keep reading through John's Gospel and see this extraordinary figure. And he gets to the end on the cross, and there he is. He's telling the truth about humanity. Because if he's the rescuer who's come to meet you where you are, he's not in a great place, is he, on the cross? He is telling the truth about humanity as he comes to meet us in what we deserve. He's showing humanity for what we are like. And we see that we are so bad, he had to die for us. But then you look again at the cross and you see this is what love has brought him to. That we are so loved that he was glad to die. Glad to rescue us like that. He's full of truth and grace, truth and grace. The truth is, you're so bad, he had to die for you. The grace is, you're so loved, he was glad to die for you. Truth and grace and grace and truth. And at some stage, you look at Jesus and you think, I think he's it. Whatever else God might be, whatever other concept of ultimate reality I might have in my head, I think he is it. I think he is number one, head honcho. I think he is Lord. That's the Bible phrase for it. And when you start to see him as Lord, watch out, you're becoming a Christian. Okay? Sneaks up on you like that. You look at Jesus, you think to yourself, I think he is what God is like. And if you're starting to think that this morning, you're becoming a Christian. That's what's happening to you. Just sneaks up on you. You look at Jesus and you think to yourself, I think he is what God is like. And when you make that discovery, you you start to realize that God 
is not the way you had imagined him to be. We often imagine him to be this distant individual, high on power, low on personality. Don't don't we think of God like this? And Jesus invites us to see a very different God. In verse 14, we see that Jesus is the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Do you see how Jesus is? He's the, the only beloved. He's the heart and soul, the pride and joy of his father, who John tells us is always filling Jesus with the Holy Spirit. We learn about the Holy Spirit later on in John's Gospel. But right from the beginning of all things, the Father has always been loving his Son Jesus in the joy of the Holy Spirit. There has always been a fountain of light and life and love. That's a compelling picture of ultimate reality, don't you think? Even even there in the beginning, the Son full of the grace and truth of the Father. There's always been this family of light and life and love. It's older than the universe. Before there were people or planets or protons, there was this love. Could that be true? And maybe you think, well, Glenn, that sounds nice, but when I look out at the world, I don't see light and life and love all the time. I I see a lot of darkness. I see a lot of death. I see a lot of disconnection. So how can you believe in light and life and love? Well, verse 5 tells us that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. See, the darkness doesn't take the Bible by surprise. The Bible is very clear that, yes, there is darkness. Because we have turned from the light. And if you turn from light, where else do you go but darkness? And when you turn from life, where else do you go but death? When you turn from love, where else do you go but disconnection? It's just the nature of the case. That is the position that you and I are in. And the Bible says, you want to know the clearest picture of the way that human hearts reject the light? Well, verse 9, here's what happens in history when the light comes to planet Earth. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world... He was in the world, Jesus came into the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. That's what happened historically. In history, the fountain of life came, and we killed life. The word of God was spoken, and we silenced the word. The light shone, and we extinguished the light. And what happened in history is what happens in our hearts all the time. All the time. I was talking to a student once about, uh, wouldn't it be great if Jesus came to planet Earth? And she said, no, it would be really inconvenient. I was like, inconvenient? That's an, that's an odd word to use. I was, I was getting excited. Wouldn't it be great if God showed up and he was full of grace and truth? She said, no, it would be really inconvenient. I said, why inconvenient? She said, I just want to live life the way I want to live life. God would get in the way. And, you know, she's just being honest, don't you think? That's the cry of every human heart. You know, even if you've been a Christian for 60 years, if I ask you the question, who's got the right to tell you what to do? Probably there's a, there's a big bit of your heart that's leaping up right now saying, nobody, no one's got the right to tell me what to do, right? That's the human heart. It happened in history when God showed up, we shut him up. But it happens in our hearts all the time. 
And the Bible says that the darkness that's out there in the world, and there's a lot of darkness that's out there in the world, it's reflected in a darkness that's in here. You and I reject the light when the light shines. It's just what you and I are like. And so often we look at a world that's out there and we say, the world is not the way it should be. And we fail to recognize that, well, that's probably because I am not the way I should be. The problem is in here. I had a real experience of this two weeks ago. I was preaching in a church, um, not my, my regular church in Eastbourne, and, um, and the musicians were not the, the caliber of the musicians this morning, who were just top-notch. Uh, at this other church that I was preaching at, um, there were one or two talented musicians, and there were, there were a, a couple of triers, you know, who blessed them. They were eager, um, probably too eager, to be honest. And uh, during the singing, I, I was just sort of not enjoying it at all. <laughs> there was this sort of discordant kind of note that was always being struck by one of the singers. And it was just cacophonous at times. And I, I was just kind of sending this thought to the guy on the PA deck, the PA desk, just saying, shut him up, shut him up. And uh, for some reason, they, they didn't. And then it got really bad in the, in the final hymn. And I was saying, literally in my, in my head, and I meant this in its most original sense, for the love of God, turn him off. For the love of God, turn him off. And something in my subconscious woke up. And I just had this very intense sense that I needed to look down. And I, I looked down to my lapel, where there was a clip mic still affixed from the sermon that I preached. And I looked to the uh, transmitter with the red light still on. And I realized that the cacophonous voice was mine. <laughs> and I instantly switched myself off. And the sound in the room improved by about 400%. It was brilliant. <laughs> and I'd spent the whole morning saying, the problem is out there. And you know what? The problem was right here, right? And don't we do the same? We say, there's, there's problems in the world. It's dreadful. It's dreadful. The problem is in here. The problem is in here. I have to turn from the darkness to the light. We all need to. That's why we had a confession this morning where we, where we all got together. And isn't it amazing when people get together and they confess that they've messed up this week and say sorry? Isn't that an amazing thing? Wouldn't, be, wouldn't the world be a much different place if every week, let's say in the cabinet, okay, in Westminster, they had to confess that week that they'd done wrong? Wouldn't that be astonishing if a politician admitted that they did wrong even once? Wouldn't that be astonishing? Wouldn't it be astonishing for us if we could admit that we'd done wrong? Admit that we are part of the problem, not part of the solution. Because at that point, we are ready to receive the solution. You know what the solution is? Well, here in verse 12, To all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, God gave them the right to become children of God. There's this beautiful thing where, in spite of the fact that we are so dark... Jesus comes anyway, because that's what love does, right? If someone's in a pit and you love them, you know what you do? You join them in the pit, don't you? And you say, your pit will become my pit. Your darkness will become my darkness. Your debts will become my debts. That's what love does, doesn't it? And who is Jesus? Jesus is the love of God made flesh, diving into the pit that we have made for ourselves. And he dives in and, and he wants to say, your darkness will become my darkness and your death will become my death. Your disconnection will become my disconnection. 
That's what the cross is all about. That's why he's there. This is what love does. Love takes on the debts of the beloved. When my wife and I got married, uh, we said these vows to one another. Uh, as we're exchanging the rings, we said, uh, all that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you. And as we said those vows to one another, there's literally laughter in the congregation because they all realize we have nothing to offer each other except student loan repayments. That's all we're, you know, honey, you take my debt. No, you take my, we just merged debt. That's all we did, right? That's why everyone was laughing. All that I am, I give to you is a ridiculous vow when you've got nothing to offer. But okay, let's think about this offer. Here comes the prince of heaven and he wants to marry you. And he's full of riches, and you're full of debts. But do you know what happens? He comes to planet Earth, and he says, all that I am, I give to you, all that I have, I share with you. Wow. What an astonishing thing to say. But can you doubt that he means it? He's given you every drop of his blood. Can you doubt that he has given himself for you? Oh, he's full of riches, full of God's own grace and truth, and he offers that to you. Can you come to the stage where you say to him, all that I am I give to you, all that I have I share with you? What's that? Well, that's, that's your debts. That's the darkness. That's the sin. That's the selfishness that you and I have. Can you come to the stage where you say, Jesus, all that I am I give to you, all that I have I share with you. Take my debts. Take it all. And when you say that to Jesus, he absorbs the debt. That's what love does. Love pays any price to be with the beloved, and Jesus absorbs all your debts. That's what he's doing on the cross, paying off the debts of his bride. Then he rises up again, and he offers you, all that I am I give to you, all that I have I share with you. I've taken your darkness, do you want my light? I've taken your disconnection, do you want my love? I've taken your death. Do you want my life? It's for free and it's forever. Do you want Jesus? I'm not selling you some abstract deity. I'm not signing you up to some kind of organized religion. I'm just saying Jesus is offered to you. Can you doubt that he's been offered to you? On that cross, he's shown you that he loves you more than his own life. He's offered to you. Do you want to, in the words of verse 12, receive him? Receive him. The the way that you would receive a partner in marriage. And you say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, in health, I, I want you. Is that something you want? Well, in a second, I'm just going to say a short prayer that you can say to Jesus. and Just say, Jesus, I, I want you. And... In a minute, we're going to have communion together. It's this moment where bread is broken to show you how Jesus was broken apart on the cross. Wine is poured out to show you how his blood was given for you on the cross. And you can receive the bread and the wine. And it's this great moment where perhaps you can, maybe even for the first time, you can say, Jesus, I receive you. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death when we meet. Is that what you want to say to Jesus? Let's all bow our heads and, and let, me, let me lead us in a prayer. You could say this prayer if you've followed Jesus. 
for 80 years. Or you could say this prayer if this morning you want to receive Jesus for the first time. You can just echo this silently in your heart. Lord Jesus, I'm beginning to see you for what you're really like. You are full of grace and truth. I see that you are Lord. I'm sorry for the ways I run from you. I'm sorry for the darkness that is in me. Please forgive me. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for your resurrection. Come into my life and lead me through this dark world and into your dazzling future. Amen. If you've prayed a prayer like that, perhaps for the first time, I'd love to shake you by the hand at the end and perhaps give you a a book like this. There'll be copies of this on the back. But uh, why don't you make yourself known to me personally? I can shake you by the hand and help you to take these first few steps with Jesus. Thanks so much, David.